Herb Alpert and the team of Brass. I'm Carson Sestouli. This is Fangraphs Audio. My guest on this edition of Fangraphs Audio making his weekly appearance is our managing editor, Dave Cameron. And what follows, Cameron and I discuss predominantly the Major League Amateur Draft, which begins tonight, Monday night, at 7 p.m. Eastern Time. Cameron discusses not only the talent that is available in this year's draft, which perhaps represents a drop-off from years past, but also the effects of the new CBA, the new collective bargaining agreement on this year's draft, and how it might affect the way teams approach the draft. In addition to that, we look back at last year's draftees and consider where certain players might have been drafted differently given another year of data. Finally, both at the beginning and end of this particular episode, I force Dave Cameron against his will to discuss Dick Allen, about who I will be writing for the forthcoming ebook, The Hall of Very Good, edited by Sky Kalkman and Mark Normandin, and including such famous authors as Joe Poznanski, Rob Nyer, Jonah Carey, and likely a number of other names you'll recognize, and the people to whom they belong. But for the meantime, this is Fangraphs Audio. It does, in fact, feature our managing editor, Dave Cameron, and against all odds, it begins right now. phases for 10 years and you know he would have just been an ordinary hall of famer instead of a guy who became like the favorite metric darling right and so i I think for that reason yeah there there exists like in terms of justice i'm not sure i don't know i mean i'm not sure that justice is the most interesting thing you that that's occurring with regard to the hall of fame i think that there's that layer of players that qualify for the Hall of Fame, but because they're not in, they're more interesting for that reason. Right. I mean, I think there's like, you know, there's a huge gray area where to me it's all kind of about personal opinion. So, you know, if you're a really small Hall guy and you only want guys who are like really fantastically awesome, then, you know, whatever. If you're a really big Hall guy and you just want any player who is good for any long period of time, then, you know, I mean, it's just hard. There's no like, there's no definition really. Right. I assume that, uh, I assume that for you, Edgar Martinez would be a figure that you care about in that regard. I'd like to see Edgar get in from a sentimental standpoint. I believe that, you know, the anti-DH bias in the voting is stupid, and so I will happily uh, wage war against that bad idea. I mean, if we're going to put relievers in all of fame, we can't keep a DH out because they don't play the whole game. Uh, that's just silly. But I don't think that Edgar is, like, such a slam-dunk candidate that, if someone doesn't vote for him, they're wrong. Like, you know, there's a lot of really good uh, hitters from that era who had, you know, slightly more defensive value than he did that probably aren't going to get in. And so, you know, like if I'm not going, if I'm going to campaign for Edgar, then I probably have to campaign for Larry Walker. And you know, uh, <laughs> there's just there's a lot of players in that mold uh, that I can understand why someone wouldn't vote for him. Right. And yet, I think it's pretty clear that there are there's a group of fans who acknowledged the fact that Edgar Martinez was really great. And especially, I mean, obviously he didn't offer much defensively, but that also points to just how great he was as a hitter. Right. I mean, I think, like, you know, that's kind of the thing is trying to remind people that, you know, he basically is a bubble candidate because of career length, not because he wasn't awesome at his peak. I mean, this isn't an issue of whether Edgar Martinez was a Hall of Fame player. It was 
uh, whether he played long enough. And to me, like those arguments are a little bit less interesting because, uh, I mean, realistically, how long a player needs to play in order to be a Hall of Famer, like, we're basically arguing about how mediocre he needs to be at the end of his career. Like, if you have 10 great years and 10 okay years, you're in. If you have 10 great years and 5 okay years, you're questionable. If you have 10 great years and 0 mediocre years, you're not in. So, like, your Hall of Fame candidacy is based on the quantity of time that you're just okay. Um, that doesn't really make any sense. Right. Um, yeah, I don't know. I guess we're, I'm still making you talk about it. I feel bad for that. Sorry. You, you always kind of uh, <laughs> make it make me talk about things. I know. I know I do. I, I feel, well, in this particular case, I feel bad about that. I guess the thing is, so talking about uh, Dick Allen is he, you know, he has credentials, especially st- uh, statistical credentials that would point to him getting in. But there's quite a bit of debate with regard to attitude, etc. Right. And to what degree I think the debate occurs, not 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 uh, as to whether he was. I mean, there's no debate over whether there was controversy surrounding him at the time, but the question was, what was that a product of? Was it a product of um, him actually behaving poorly? Was it a product of him being perceived as behaving poorly? Or uh, another possibility, was he actually behaving poorly, but was it in response to you know, assorted factors, not the least of which was racism? Right. And you know, I, I definitely wanted to spend Major League Draft Day talking about Dick Allen's career retrospective. <laughs> today's, major, today's Major League Draft begins at it, 7... It Begins at 7 p.m. Eastern, and if I'm not mistaken, Cameron, this draft has maybe not received as much attention, and there's been perhaps less excitement leading up to it. I don't know. I'm thinking that's true. At least it has been for me. And my guess is because there's a lack of sort of top-level talent involved. Is that true, or are both those things true? Well, I think it gets the same amount of attention every year. I mean, I think the, you know, the fact that it's on television now, it's getting more notoriety. There's, you know, it used to just be Baseball America was the only place to cover it is, but now, you know, uh, Keith Law has, uh, his little ESPN, not little, but he, he has his ESPN Insider blog with, uh, Kylie McDaniel and Jason Churchill and they cover it. And, you know, I mean, like Mark Hewlett's doing it for us. So there's certainly more than one area out there where you're going to get draft coverage. Um, you know, most of the data still probably, or most of the information still comes through a few sources, and everyone else is kind of feeding off of those sources. But I think there's still a good amount of information out there. But I think it's definitely true that this draft class is considered to be a little bit underwhelming, um, and there aren't, you know, a ton of guys who you're looking at and saying, oh, man, if we draft this guy, he's going to be in the major leagues next year, and, you know, this is a good guy who we can really build around as a franchise player that we can count on. Right. Well, last year, uh, of course... Uh, there was there was some top level talent um, uh, in uh, oh god this is embarrassing I know Trevor Bauer was drafted I know Dylan Bundy was drafted yeah um, and I know There's a guy named Garrett Cole you ever heard of him yeah right Garrett Cole out of UCLA that was that was it I I don't know Trevor Bauer uh, while being drafted after. Um, Cole, for some reason, sticks out in my mind more. I think he probably appeals to nerds in a way that Garrett Cole doesn't. Yeah, like I mean, maybe at some point we should just do a podcast about Trevor Bauer because I find the 
uh, I find him interesting in the sense that I think he's a little bit overrated because he's, he tweets about fangraphs and he says interesting things on Twitter. Uh, so he does these things that like make people want to love him. But in terms of like prospectability, reading fangraphs, I don't think there's, there's any evidence that that makes you any better. No, sure, but uh, I think that that doesn't make it a, a less. I mean, it makes it. It's he's an interesting story, and that's why I think he's he's appealing. But you're right in terms of performance, and of course that th- those things are are often, and, and perhaps one of the reasons Fangraphs exists, or when we're at our best, what we're doing is we're helping to um, to construct the the appropriate narrative, right? the the exciting sure. The exciting thing about Trevor Bauer is his, is his narrative, and but so frequently, and this happens in the mainstream media too. The narrative and a player's talent level get conflated. Like the the degree to which we can enjoy the narrative. I mean, this happens, you know, like the New York media all the time, where you know you have uh, sports writers decrying uh, Alex Rodriguez, you know, announcing for years that he's not a true Yankee. Uh, this has nothing to do with his performance necessarily. This has to do with the narrative surrounding Alex Rodriguez, because if you look at it, of course he's been very good in the field. Uh, well, he's been terrible in the field. Pretty good at the plate, but I know. Okay, all right, you know what I'm. The field of play. Right. Yeah. The field of play, Dave Cameron. But, but right. So even though I didn't remember his name, Garrett Cole was important. <laughs> uh, he, he was considered, um, and and a, a bunch of, uh, of course, there were a bunch of top level draft uh, or uh, pitching prospects coming out last year. The, the only real name. That I know, or I guess there are two names. I think there is uh, Mark Apple or Appel. How do you say that? Appel. Yeah, Mark Appel. Okay, Mark Appel is maybe he fits in that Garrett Cole um, uh, sort of mold where he's got great stuff, but maybe the numbers have haven't caught up. Is that is that a pro, is that a decent characterization? Kind of. I mean, and, uh, Cole threw harder. I'm going to tell them more of a mid-90s guy where Cole is a high-90s guy. I think most scouts would rather have Cole than Appel. Uh, so Appel is definitely a guy who went into the draft uh, season like as the number one overall prospect, and his performance was somewhat disappointing. Uh, his, basically, he gave up a lot of hits, and maybe more than you'd expect for a guy with his stuff in college. Um, I'm always a little bit leery of these kinds of uh, concerns around pitchers. I mean, I remember Justin Verlander in his junior year in college. There were some issues about how many hits he gave up, uh, and, you know, he turned out okay. Um, you know, to me, I think I'm concerned far more about stuff uh, and physical abilities than I am about um, performance in college to some degree. I mean, I think, you know, if you're terrible, that matters. But, you know, nitpicking whether a guy gives up five or six hits for nine innings or whether the strikeout rate is 9.5 or 10.2, uh, you know, to me, these are issues that maybe are a little bit overblown. And I, I, I think if the Astros do end up taking a pill number one, it's probably going to be a decent selection. Right, and so we should mention, of course, that the Astros have the number one uh, pick. It's not necessarily the best year to have the number one pick. Right. I mean, last year, I think most scouts would say there are five or six guys who you could have taken number one overall and been okay with it, or at least, you know, felt like you got a guy that was the number one pick worthy. This year, there's two guys in that mix uh, for most for most scouts, and they're behind the guys from last year. So, you know, uh, Byron Buxton is the uh, other guy in the mix for number one pick. Uh, is an exciting tool of the guy, but he's, you know, uh, a pretty raw product. Has, I think he's only hit two or three home runs in high school this year, so his power is nowhere near uh, major league ready. 
he's basically a, an athlete who um, you're hoping to learn how to hit for enough power in order to be a good major league player. Uh, and with Appel, you know, he's uh, a good college pitching prospect, but he's probably not on the level of a Cole or a Bauer or even a Holton uh, or a Bundy. Um, so there's, you know, better pitching prospects than last year's draft. And then, you know, with Buxton, he's so far away from the major leagues that you're taking a risk at number one overall. Are there some players, uh, just, just to help us sort of um, calibrate our idea of, of Buxton, are there some players in Buxton's mold that we've seen at the major leagues, players who have become a success? Well, I mean, he generally gets compared uh, partially because he's a black high school outfielder to the Upton brothers. Uh, you know, BJ and Justin were both shortstops in high school, but physically uh, he has some resemblance to uh, BJ and Justin Upton. BJ didn't hit for a lot of power early in his career. Justin always had a little bit more. Um, but I think, you know, that's kind of the lazy comparison. I mean, it might be the most accurate, but it's, you know, probably also somewhat based in race. Um, so, you know, I think that we're I, – I would say – from what I've read, having not seen Buxton in person, but talking to some people who have seen him, uh, to me sounds maybe a little bit more like an Andrew McCutcheon. Uh, he's taller than McCutcheon is, but you know McCutcheon's a guy who was drafted based on speed and defense and the hope of the power to come around, and it has. And, and so in terms of player type, I think that's maybe more what you're hoping for from Buxton is speed and defense at the beginning, uh, hope the power develops later. Okay. So th- that's the talent. Um, we've mentioned that it's probably not quite as deep, especially the, the top levels um, this year as, as last year or probably the year before. Um, the real issue, though, f- for people who are watching, and this is something that I um, definitely do not understand in full as of now, is the way or the ways probably uh, in which the new collective bargaining agreement will affect the draft. What, what do we need to know about that? And, you know, what will fans of the particular teams want to know about the CBA to know um, how it will influence how their teams are drafting? Well, the big change this year is that, you know, Major League Baseball has been suggesting finding bonuses for various slots for a long time, but they've never really had any power to do anything about it. So they would tell a team, hey, the number one pick should sign for $7.5 million, and if that team signs them for $15 million, then they can send a sternly worded letter and get the owner to yell at the GM, but the GM can just say, shove off, I took a complete, I just took Steven Strasburg, you're going to like this in a couple of years, back me up. And there was nothing the Major League Baseball could actually do. In the new CBA, they've actually written in some teeth to their guidelines. So now they've given teams a total budget allocation based on the picks that they have and where they fall. And now teams are not allowed to spend more than uh, that amount or they start to face some penalties. So if they go over that total allocation by 5%, up to 5%, they get a 75% tax on the overage, 5% to 10%, it's a 75% tax and a loss of next year's first round pick. And then if you go over by 10% or more, you lose your first and second round pick the next year and it's 100% tax on the overage. So they put in some pretty significant penalties after the 5% market, which I think are going to be strong enough to keep teams uh, in line and you're just not going to see any more uh, Steven Strasburg-sized contracts going to amateur players who are drafted. Um, I want to get on the. Uh, I want to address the effects of that momentarily. Now, was the reason though that 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 sort of rule was able to be instated is basically because prospects, um, you know, or amateur players don't have representation when it comes to um, when it comes to negotiating in the CBA. Yeah, I mean, the union is always going to be more willing to trade the rights of non-union members to get union members more. Uh, so that's basically what they did, as they. Uh, you know, made some negotiations and said, okay, we're willing to, 
uh, help Major League Baseball drive down the costs of uh, signing bonuses, which is, you know, I mean, Major League Baseball can talk about parity and, uh, you know, competitive balance all they want. Uh, the draft is entirely there as a uh, cost reduction uh, machine, and every effort to keep signing bonuses down is all about cost reduction for the owners. Um, and so the players were willing to go along with that in exchange for other compromises elsewhere in the CBA. Right. But it, it could theoretically mean um, that Major League Baseball teams will not have the access to talent that they have had in the past. Yes? Uh, it, that's one of the concerns I think of a little bit overblown. Uh, the concern more with the CBA was uh, about the international uh, prospects where you potentially drive kids into other sports by drastically reducing the amount of money that's spent on you know, 16-year-old Venezuelans or Dominicans or whatever, and if you say these kids are premium talents, then, you know, their their overall amount of money is going to not be enough to convince them to give up their, you know, career in some other athletic endeavor in order to play baseball. In the draft, uh, this is more about, um, I mean, the overall pools are pretty similar to what they have been in prior years. So you're not seeing uh, Major League Baseball come in and cut the bonuses in half where all these kids who... You know, these two sport athletes, a guy like Bubba Starling last year or something, would have said, you know what, that bonus is nowhere near enough to get me a sign. Uh, I'm going to go play football instead. So I don't think we're going to see uh, American players stop playing baseball at the professional level in order to pursue other sports because of this move. Uh, I do think that we're going to see some structural changes to how teams approach the draft and how they uh, uh, negotiate and kind of um, their uh, their plans going into the draft on what kind of players to target, but I don't think we're going to see a, a loss of American players playing baseball. Okay, and you wrote today a piece called uh, Trading Down in the Draft. Can you explain yeah. what that means even at all? Well, draft picks aren't allowed to be traded in Major League Baseball. You get the picks you're given, and you have to use those picks, and you're not allowed to trade them no matter whether you want to take a guy there or not. Um, in all the other sports, you can trade down or trade up or, you know, the draft is a pretty active trade today. That's not true in Major League Baseball, but I do think these new rules potentially open up an avenue for a team near the top of the draft uh, to reallocate their funds to essentially trade down or to kind of like trade down in practice uh, when you're not actually trading with another team. But if you take a you know a, a top ten pick that has a slot value of between three and five million, so that's part of your bonus pool, and say you take a guy for a million dollars down there, you've just saved two or three million dollars that you can then use on your, you know, second or third round pick. And if there's a guy, specifically Lucas Giolito would probably be the guy this year who's going to fall due to injury concerns and maybe still wanting top player money despite the fact that his elbow hurts, uh, if you saved enough money up top, you can potentially get him in the second round and get two first-round caliber players. Uh, it's certainly a risky move because if there's a team in the first round that decides to take a shot at Giolito, uh, then all of a sudden you took a, you know, a not for top talent in the top ten uh, and you don't have anyone else on the board who is a, you know, high high signability slot guy uh, to make up for it in the second round. Now you've just kind of <laughs> you've got extra money to throw around and maybe no one to give it to. So it's not something that I think that every team is going to try. But I'm interested to see if some team out there who wants Giolito but doesn't want to spend a top ten pick on him uh, takes a lesser guy up top and then tries to snatch him in the second round. Uh, yeah, actually, would you just uh, talk about uh, Giolito for a second? Just sort of what his profile is. Well, he was uh, in the mix for being the number one overall pick uh, until his elbow came down. He's a you know tall, hard-throwing, right-handed pitching prospect. 
uh, you know, draws comparisons to all the really top profile um, pitching prospects of the past, you know, of the Josh Beckett of the world. Uh, that's kind of the mold that scouts see him in. Um, six six uh, with an upper 90s fastball is hit 100. Um, good breaking ball. Uh, definitely has a projectable body. So Giolito is kind of that uh, classic uh, power throwing uh, high school pitching prospect who would have gone very very highly had his elbow not come down uh, with a sprain. I mean, they never did Tommy John surgery, but it was a an injury to the ligament that. Uh, is generally associated with Tommy John surgery, so it's potentially an option if rest and rehab doesn't work and he's still in the rehab portion. Um, so it's interesting to see if anyone will take a shot at Giolito uh, in the first round, given that you know he's probably still going to ask for a significant amount of money or he might just go to college. And if, he's go, uh, if he goes to college, where is he going? Uh, that's a good question. I actually don't know where Lucas Giolito is. Uh, I'm just going to guess. Uh, UCLA, because uh, that's in my head somewhere that maybe he's committed to UCLA, but that's, uh, you know, there's probably like a 10% chance that I'm right. Yeah, well, yeah, maybe better than 10%. We, uh, we could do some illicit Googling as, uh, as all this is, as this is going on. Um, <clears throat> in the, uh, and in fact, um, you're right, he's, he's, uh, he's committed to attend UCLA. Hey, look at that. That's yeah. a pretty fantastic uh, pull out of my butt right there. Yeah. I don't know what he was doing in your butt. That was, well, was so uh, yeah, I, I felt bad that I had to reach down there to begin with. I think I'm that's a, gr- a greater concern, I think, than than you not knowing uh, right. where Lucas Schiller is going to college. So, so I guess, yeah. So what you're saying is that there's a possibility that a team, uh, especially one that's allocated now, what, what teams are allocated uh, essentially the most overall or the most per pick, and, and which teams will have uh, sort of the least spending power? Uh, I think the Twins have the most. They have uh, 12.4 million because they pick second and 32nd and 42nd and 63rd and 72nd and 97th. So they have a lot of picks that have half million dollar or more slots. And the number two pick has a 6.2 million dollar slot. So they, that's basically half of their pool right there. Um, the Astros are up there. Obviously, any team that's going to be picking in the top five is going to be up there because the uh, the values for those high picks are significant, and then they decrease pretty quickly uh, from there. Um, and then I think at the bottom of the list is the Angels, who uh, don't pick until, what, 114. Um, so they only have 1.7 million total for uh, their entire first 10 rounds. Um, and then the Tigers have just over 2 million. So uh, there's definitely a big spread uh, in available money between the teams at the top and the teams at the bottom. No, I, I, I'm guessing that the reason that the Angels and the Tigers have less money to play with is because uh, they've given up picks uh, because of free agent signings? Yeah, that would be the Albert Pools and Prince Fielder uh, ramifications coming into play. Right. And C.J. Wilson, too, or no? Uh, yeah, C.J. Wilson also factors in for the Angels. So that's why the Angels' first pick is so late. And uh, I think the Tigers uh, lost their pick for someone else who I'm not currently thinking of. But, uh, but yeah, the Tigers don't pick until 91st. The Angels don't pick until 114th. So no. this is definitely a loss of picks. Is that is that a, a bigger... Or a, or a smaller penalty than bef- than the, uh, under the previous system. Well, I mean, this year it's probably a smaller penalty because the picks in this year's draft are not as valuable as in other drafts. But that's, I mean, whether the Tigers and Angels looked at that and said we don't really like any of these amateur players, let's give up our picks. Uh, seems unlikely. They just wanted Pools and Fielder, and you know, got lucky that this was a good year to give up draft picks. Okay, so combining, uh, you know, combining what what we know now about the 
about the draft talent, or the talent pool, I should say, that's available, about the new CBA um, and its effects on the draft and, and how teams will allocate spending in, in that. And uh, generally speaking, what you know or uh, about the front offices, do you have a sense of, of which teams could come out of this, um, I guess, as winners and or losers? Or if such a thing will exist, or it will at least exist to the same degree it has in previous years? Um, my guess is the Twins are going to be considered to be the team that wins the draft. Uh, the, the reports, no one really knows for sure, but reports are that Houston's going to take Mark Appel. Uh, he's a Houston-based pitcher. Uh, he's a safer pick because he's closer to the majors, and the Astros clearly need pitching. So uh, if the Astros take Appel, uh, the Twins will most likely take Byron Buxton, who's number one on most people's draft boards. Uh, so the Twins will get lauded for getting the number one player with the number two pick. And then they have so many of the second and third and compensation round picks in that uh, middle area that they're going to come out with you know several more highly touted players as well. So my guess is at the end of the day, when Baseball America is doing their draft grades and people are doing their, their recaps, the Twins are going to be the team that is considered to have won the draft. Um, you know, in terms of who's going to be the loser, that's hard to say. It's usually the team who picks someone who... Uh, is a little bit unexpected and kind of goes off the board. Uh, last year when the Mariners selected Danny Holtzman number two overall when they were selected, expected to select Anthony Rendon, uh, some people who weren't as big fans of Holtzman, uh, at least in the number two spot, considered the Mariners to be losers for taking a guy who they saw as less than Bauer or Bundy or one of his other premium-type talents versus a lower-ceiling guy in Holtzman. Uh, but there's no real way to know ahead of time which team's going to uh, kind of go off the board for that kind of pick. Right, and it seems as though maybe another another sort of player that receives um, maybe less attention, and maybe Holson to some degree fits in that mold, is the the sort of safer college pick. Is that right? Yeah, I mean, I think there are certainly guys in this draft who are going to be seen as you know maybe lower upside guys. I think there's a a kid named Marcus Stroman who pitches for Duke, who's uh, probably going to be projected as a reliever by a lot of people. Um, but there's some scouts that think he can start. He's undersized, so he's you know a little five nine, five ten guy who throws really hard. Those guys often get uh, pegged as bullpen guys, but don't always end up in the bullpen. And so you know I wouldn't be surprised if some team overdrafts Stroman because they don't care about height and overdrafts relative to maybe where you'd expect him to go. So if Stroman's kind of projected as a fifteen to thirty pick, I wouldn't be shocked if someone took him at eight or nine or ten and said, hey, look, we just like the fact this guy's got a great arm. We don't care about the fact that he's 5'9". Now, another player, at least that I know I've seen, uh, is Mike Zunino, a sort of power-hitting catcher out of the University of Florida. Um, do you have a sense of where – because he's been an excellent offensive player, but I, I'll assume, um, if for no other reason that this is true of a lot of offensively talented catchers, uh, is that the, there's questions about his defensive reputation. Um, what do we know about Zanino, where he's likely to go, and where he might end up as a major leaguer? Yeah, I think that in this case, it's not so much that there's questions about Zanino's ability to catch as much as it is no one really sees a standout skill. So he's not, uh, you know, a guy you can really dream on. He's not a, you know, when Jeff Clement was taken number three overall, uh, he was a, a big-time power-hitting left-handed catcher whose power got compared to guys like Jim Tomey. And, you you know, you didn't like the defense, but you were assuming that if he hit as well as he could, you'd live with it. And then he just never hit as well as he was supposed to, and he got injured. And, you know, his career kind of went off the rails. Uh, Zanino's not kind of seen as that kind of power hitter. He's supposed to be more of a good hitter than a great hitter. Uh, his defense should be good enough to allow him to stick behind the plate. But I think most people look at him and say, you know, it's a... 
an average bat with a, light, a little bit above average power and okay defense. There's nothing here to love. Uh, you know, it's a safe pick. He's a guy who'll probably get to the majors. You don't know if he's going to turn into a superstar. And, uh, you know, maybe he's Kurt Suzuki with a little bit more power. That's not a guy that you necessarily want uh, as your franchise player, but it's a, it's a nice pick, especially in a down draft. So I think Zanino could go anywhere from three to six, probably. Uh, he's going to go in the top part of the first, uh, the top ten for sure. Um, and, you know, someone will take him and kind of say, we, you know, we're going to skip out on the upside in order to minimize our risk. Right. You mentioned Jeff Clement. That was a player that was existed, that existed. Yeah. Uh, given the draft that he was taken in, you could maybe argue that Clement was one of the worst picks in recent history in terms of results. I mean, you know, maybe at the time you could justify that he was, uh, you know, worth it because of his bat and positional scarcity and all that. But, I mean, that was the draft with Troy Tolitsky and Justin Upton and Alex Gordon, and uh, there were just home runs up and down that draft. It's one of the best drafts of all time. And uh, Jeff Clement is currently playing first base for the Indianapolis uh, uh, AAA franchise for the Pirates. Yeah, so, right. Uh, now, not, if I remember, not a good selection. If I remember, though, Clement actually had some decent minor league seasons. Was it all PCL or was it? Uh, so he kind of had some. He hit for power. He drew some walks. He always struck out a lot. His defense was always atrocious, uh, and he had a bunch of knee injuries. He never really dominated a level. He had about a half season in Tacoma before the Mariners called him up. Uh, that was really good, but it was about 200 at bats. There was never like any sustained stretch of time where he really killed it in the minors, and he was always old for the level because he's you know was a college guy who then kind of moved a little bit slowly. So um, he was not a guy who uh, was necessarily looked like a premium prospect and fell on his face. He was a guy who pretty much got drafted, underperformed, and then you know has continued to underperform for his entire career. Hey, uh, so so now uh, obviously with the draft starting today, we're about it. We're a year out from last year's draft. Um, I know that you've written at least a couple times now about Dylan Bundy uh, on the site, and I, th- and I think at least Mike Newman's written at least one, if not two pieces about Dylan Bundy. He's probably a player we could say that uh, has not only met but perhaps exceeded somewhat lofty expectations. Um, do you have a sense of, of where other players from last year's draft are at? Well, I think Bundy, so if you were going to redo last year's draft, I think Bundy would go number one. Uh, and, you know, no high school right-handers ever gone number one overall. So, uh, given what he's done in the first part of this, uh, season, I think his stock has gone up more than anybody else's. I mean, everyone loved Dylan Bundy before the draft, but they are madly in love with Dylan Bundy now. And he's generally considered to be either him or Jurek from Profar as the best prospect in the minor leagues right now. Uh, so I think if you redid the draft, Bundy would go number one. Um, you know, Trevor Bauer might go number two. Uh, and then, you know, you have the Holton and Coles and those guys have, you know, would all still be in that, you know, middle of the top ten, uh, tier. Uh, and Anthony Rendon is probably the guy who's taking the biggest hit, mainly because he got hurt again and, uh, who's questionable about whether he'll even play this season. Uh, there were injury issues with him going into the year. And, uh, the fact that he's, uh, suffered another significant injury probably would derail his stock significantly and you know at this point he probably wouldn't even be a first rounder um and what about so what do we know about uh well who else went i mean garrett cole we mentioned what, what's cole doing in the minor leagues right now he's in high a ball he's pitching fine he's not dominating from a strikeout perspective he's averaging about a strikeout per inning uh in a ball um which is you know there's nothing wrong with it uh but it's not you know it's not what trevor bauer was doing in double a so there's probably a little less excitement about him than there was before the draft um, but the Pirates are taking it slow with him. They're, you know, he's a guy who, uh, 
wasn't as polished overall as you'd expect. He was a stuff guy, um, and so he was drafted on that stuff, and so they're letting him kind of work his way to the major leagues. They're not rushing him. He probably won't make it to Pittsburgh before, you know, summer of next year. And another player you mentioned, because I, I guess um, you, you've made me realize just now that the three top prospects entering um, 2012, um, Bryce Harper, Mike, Mike Trout, and um, uh, Matt Moore are all in the major leagues right now. And yeah. and those were considered to sort of be a, um, a band apart from uh, the rest of the prospects um, in the minor leagues. So that's sort of, I guess, uh, there's been some reorganization as to as to the uh, the top prospects that are existing now in the minor leagues. You said Profar is one of those guys. What's what's Profar up to right now? Uh, Profar is hitting well in Double A as a 19 year old, which is ridiculous. Profar is, uh, uh, I would say, probably right now the top prospect for me. I love Bundy. You know, I got to see Bundy pitching his second or third pro start, second pro start. Uh, really liked what I saw, but a 19-year-old who can play gold glove defense and hit well in double A, uh, those, these guys just don't come around all that often. So, Profar's, uh, kind of the prototypical, uh, shortstop who can provide value on both sides of the bat and the glove. Uh, so I think right now I would have to say for positional scarcity, uh, you know, and upside, uh, I would take Derek from Profar as the best prospect in the minors. Now, that doesn't seem fair because the Rangers are really good. Um, without yeah. having an excellent um, minor league system, but I know that they also have um, they also have, for example, Leonis Martin, who was yep. a, a Cuban um, free agent signing, who, I, I, if I'm not mistaken, has above average defensive ability, or at least average defensive ability in center field, and is also a, a pretty good hitter. Uh, he the bat is a little bit of a question mark. No one's really sure how much power he's going to hit for. Uh, and he strikes out more than you'd like from a guy who doesn't have a ton of power. Uh, he's also injured, so he hasn't played. I mean, he played really well when he was healthy, but he hasn't played in about a month. So, um, Martin is a guy who I think they were hoping would take over their center field job at some point this year, but he didn't work great in spring training, uh, and there's still some issues to work on. So, Martin may be a, a 2013 guy. Um, but yeah, I mean, the Rangers are the best team in baseball, and they've got Martin and Profar sitting in, uh, the high minors waiting to add to their team. I think you could make an argument right now that the, with Profar and Andrus, the Rangers probably have the two most valuable shortstops in the American League. <laughs> and they're both in the same organization. Is Andrus a player, or sorry, not Andrus, is Profar a player if he were playing in a different organization that would that would be receiving a call-up soon or would have been called up already? Uh, it kind of depends on the organization. I mean, Profar is not so advanced that he doesn't have anything left to learn in the minors. I mean, he's still a teenager. He's uh, you know, still got things to work on. He's not destroying double A, but he's doing well for his age. Um, but I think, you know, most organizations who were building for the future would leave Profar in the minors and let him continue to learn down there without using a service time. If you were a contender and you had, you know, a terrible hole at shortstop, you might just look and say, hey, Jerks and Profar is the best shortstop in my organization and I'm trying to win right now. I'm going to call him up and see if he can hold his own. Uh, but the Rangers are not in that situation. They have, you know, the best shortstop in the American League ahead of him, so they can afford to be very patient. What about the Bill Bavese era Seattle Mariners? What, what would Profar be right now? Would he be, uh, well, I think the, would he be in the Orioles? The, yeah, right, exactly. He would have been traded for, uh, you know, probably to the Indians. We liked giving all our good prospects to the Indians. Uh, no, I think with uh, Bavese's mindset, it was push guys as hard as they possibly can until they fail because they need to learn how to fail. So Profar would have probably began his professional career at AAA. And then when he hit 150, he would have been traded for Ben Broussard. 
<laughs> not that you're not that you're bitter. No, not at all. I think Bill Macy's track record as a GM is fantastic and doesn't make me at all angry. No, I know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Hey, just to uh, bookend this podcast successfully, uh, I did want to mention with regard to Dick Allen. Interesting fact I learned uh, while doing uh, while looking over his numbers. He uh, he played zero games. Um, in the minor leagues at third base, and then in his rookie season, he started 162 games at third base. Wow. Yeah. How did that work? Well, he committed 41 errors. Okay, so not well. But yeah, not well. He led the yeah. league. Uh, also, interesting, um, per Fangraph's war, um, uh, Dick Allen's uh, rookie season is the best since 1914. The best uh, rookie season since 1914. That's pretty impressive, considering yeah. he made 41 errors. Yeah, it, it did uh, hurt. Yeah, it probably would have been. I think it was eight point. It was an 8.7 win season. I think it would have been uh, over over nine pretty easily without the errors. But then again, um, I, I actually his range might have been decent though. He might have been right. Really yeah, he was, he was only 22. I mean, it seems like one of those things where. Uh, you know, based on the data we have, we don't. We probably don't know what kind of plays he was making. Although I think it, you, it's hard to be a good defensive player and make 41 errors. Yeah. Well, I mean, he had never played there before, so he right. played in the outfield and uh, second base in the minors. Okay. Yeah. Huh? Yeah. Interesting stuff, huh? You seem yeah, uh, wrapped with super, attention. Super, super happy to be talking about Dick Allen again. <laughs> well, let's. Uh, Let's get you off the podcast. Uh, I'll invite you to stick around briefly for some adult conversation. But in the meantime, Dave Cameron, thank you for making your weekly appearance here on Fangos Audio. Thanks for having me. All right, that's Dave Cameron. I am and will continue to be Carson Sestouli. And this has been, I guess, a draft a draft plus Dick Allen special of a special edition of Fangos Audio. <laughs>